0: You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 194 is Vashti Bunyan, an acoustic singer songwriter who started writing and recording in 1964, was discovered by Andrew Lug Oldham, the manager of the Rolling Stones, and so recorded some with him and with some other folks in the late 60s. You're right now hearing Train Song, a single from 1966. This and other songs for the period were re-released on Some Things Stick in Your Mind, 2007. The first song we'll be discussing today is I Want to Be Alone, an original 1965 B-side to a Rolling Stones cover song. After a handful of recordings, she quit music to travel upcountry in a horse and wagon. And she wrote about this experience in her recently released autobiography, Wayward, Just Another Life to Live, which is really what she's promoting today. However, at the end of that journey, she recorded an album commemorating the trip called Just Another Diamond Day that was released in 1970. We're going to discuss the song Rose Hip November from that. After that album, she quit music yet again until that 1970 album was rediscovered in the early aughts. She then recorded an album in 2005 called Look Aftering. We're going to talk about the song Wayward and we'll conclude by listening to the title track to her last album to date, 2014's Heart Leap. Vashti's website is anotherday.co.uk. To learn more about this podcast, go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Make sure you're subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed. And I'd love you to leave a rating or review on the Nakedly Examined Music Apple Podcasts page or wherever you listen to this podcast. You can support the effort at patreon.com slash Music. I will play a little bit of Train Song, recorded. 66? 67? 66. Okay. One of your vintage tunes that is now... I just heard you in a live show on YouTube saying that it was played once when it was released as a signal at the time.
1: Yeah, yeah, once on a pirate radio station where they were giving it away as a prize in a competition. And that was the only time it was played.
0: (laughs) But has since been, you said, sold to... been on several commercials. (laughs)
1: Been on several commercials and film soundtracks. It's just been incredible for somebody who was told in 1966 that her songs were not commercial. It's been quite a ride. (laughs) Just wonderful.
0: So normally in these interviews, I kind of start with something very current and maybe work backward because I don't know, sometimes people don't even want to talk about their early stuff. But we're here celebrating not the latest album, but the book Wayward, which is a retrospective. So I feel like let's do that. Let's go sort of in order so we can recount some of the same stories or get some more insight just before we leave Train Song. Just the fact that that was written with quite different lyrics in the first place with your friend Jenny Lewis. You'd written this in 1964 when you were 18, 17, something? 18, 19, yeah. Okay. But then apparently weren't so attached to the lyrics such that when you ran into this poet, Alistair Clare, in 66, he just had an existing poem that you saw and said this would go over this?
1: Yeah. Sure, I'd met him a while before, and I, I, I didn't really have a lot of time for him. He used to write poems, put them in the milk bottle at my door. <laughs> and I didn't take to him very much at that time because he seemed very uncool to me. Because he, you know, he wore brogues and a tweed jacket, and he was he was probably only thirty, but he seemed like a hundred to me, and. <laughs> He was this poet and the youngest fellow of All Souls College in Oxford. And he was, to me, he was really boring. Later on, I got to know him much better and I was much kinder to him. But he had this poem called Train Song, and it just fitted the tune that Jenny Lewis and I had written for our song called 17 Pink Sugar Elephants. I never sang 17 Pink Sugar Elephants, if I could help it. But the tune fitted Train Song, so we share the set for it anyway. So that's quite
0: good. I mean, I guess that's kind of what I wanted to pick on is we're going to get into pretty soon the single or rather the B-side to the single, because that's the one you wrote that you were sort of pushed into. You're going to cover this Mick Jagger, Keith Richards song to be the single. And we're sort of defensive about, well, I write my own songs, but yet... You're trying to get your voice out in the world, the ego of a young person, you know, <laughs> very natural, of course. <laughs> but yet with this train song, I don't know, was Pink Sugar Elephants just goofy enough that you felt like there are several songs in your book that you mentioned that somebody that was around you wrote lyrics for. So that was okay. It wasn't that, oh, every word that comes out of my mind is sacrosanct and could never be tweaked. It's, you it seemed okay, at least in this case, just swapping it out whole hog.
1: Sure. I mean, I get much more possessive about tunes and chord sequences and stuff. If somebody covers one of my songs and doesn't get it quite right, I get really agitated. This terrible control freak, but words, not so much.
0: Let's get the B side out there. I want to be alone. So this is one that I saw on the collection that you put together. Some things just stick in your mind, not released till 2007 that you didn't have a demo for. Did this song come up just, you know, right before in 65 when you were doing this recording? Why did this one get picked to get the big band treatment and be put out there as the first representation of your songwriting?
1: It was probably me that chose it, but David Rediko who did the arrangement. It was a wonderful experience for me to sit next to somebody on a piano and actually have my own ideas of the music that was turning around in my head. Although I only played guitar, I had other instruments in my head. And to have him actually translated into an orchestration for that song was absolutely wonderful for me. And I did prefer it to the Mick Jagger and Keith Richard one, which had been chosen for me by Andrew Lou Golden, their manager, as my first single. And yeah, I made a fuss about it. I sulked. I want to do my songs, as you say, the ego of a young person. I was 19. But he did promise to put one of my songs on the B-side. And that was I Want To Be Alone. And I don't actually remember when I wrote it, but it would have been around just about at that time. I might even have done it specially for that single, but I thought that it was better. I thought that it should be the A side. <laughs>
0: can hear the early Rolling Stones chamber music arrangements. I was sort of looking at the calendar. I mean, if this is 1965, were they huge yet?
1: Yes, they were already enormous and incredibly successful. And I was in absolute awe of them. But I still thought that my song was better. I got into trouble on a radio interview for saying that I thought that I wrote better songs than Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. I meant for me to sing, but yes, I got into big trouble from the management for saying that. But in fact, in later years, when I got to know Andrew Luke again, in more recent years, he has said that he thinks now that it was the better song and the better recording. And that, yeah. It should have been the
0: A side. I don't know. When I hear Mick Jagger sing that kind of chamber music, there's something really weird about it because he has this soul voice. But your voice, I don't know, sounds a little more natural in this chamber setting. One of the big themes of your book is I am not a folk singer. I might have had an acoustic guitar, but I, you know, was not playing blowing in the wind. I was a pop singer. And the A side, I was looking, I'll link folks to the video of you. Lip-syncing and swaying with a uh, Technicolor spinning around behind you. <laughs> oh,
1: that was for Shindig for the American pop music program, where they used to come over to the UK to record a few people, of course, miming to their singles. And then they would take them back and slot them in between American artists and with fake applause and screaming and whistling and stuff. Oh, dear goodness. For the A side of the single, for something's just to stick in your mind, I was meant to stand there and not exactly dance, but I didn't want to move at all because I don't move well. And they said, no, you've got to move a bit. And so I, I look like some kind of string puppet. <laughs> it's terrible. But for I want to be alone, they let me sit on a stool and just be me. Which and I think that comes a bit
0: better. Did that single do anything for you? Did you ever hear it on the radio ever or
1: No. Occasionally and it was in a couple of T V pop programs. And, <sighs> yeah, there was Thank You Lucky Styles and one called Jukebox Jury, which I think it got a thumbs up for. It was publicized a lot to begin with and then nothing happened. And you know, I did a lot of TV and interviews and then suddenly nothing. So that was a real shock. For very young people when that happens to them, that they get lorded and everything is going to be great. And then there's nothing. It can be quite damaging, <laughs> quite hurtful, quite an injury really for a very young person. And I think it happens a lot.
0: Well, it's still so amazing to have something with this production and arrangement team as a memento <laughs> that you actually got to participate in this and have that I'm actually surprised that you say you like the arrangement so much because you know it's a busy arrangement. It's not mostly even you your guitar. Is your guitar even still on this recording?
1: I'm not playing guitar at all. No, for "I Want to Be Alone," there weren't that many instruments. It was pared down quite a lot. But for something's just sticking your mind, there was so many instruments that we couldn't fit them all into the studio at once. So it had to be done in two lots, and trombones getting in the way of each other. But what an incredible arrangement! There was everything in there. And I've got the original scores of Bersikers and so many instruments that I'd never even heard of. You know? But that was Andrew Goldham. He puts everything in that he possibly could. So, yeah, it was quite crowded. But when I listen to it now, I like it. I wish it had worked. But, you know, life would have been very different had it
2: worked.
0: Just looking a little more closely at I Want to Be Alone, you know that there are times when, pause, I don't need you. Can you say something about sort of the way that you choose to phrase these things, especially when you don't have your guitar in your hand, which actually makes it natural? I don't know. Did this sort of evolve you know, as this was being recorded with exactly where you were putting the syllables and things? Or do you even remember that level of?
1: I don't remember. No recollection of that being any kind of a skill or anything like that. It was totally natural. My phrasing, when I listen to it now, I think, wow, that is actually, you know, I was 20 And the phrasing is really quite good. (laughs) I'm quite impressed by it because I didn't know. I know nothing about music. I was not trained in any way. In fact, Andrew sent me for singing lessons with an opera singer. (laughs) And he gave up on me after one lesson. You know,
0: (laughs) I can't do anything with this girl. (laughs) No diaphragm. You must just whisper. (laughs) So
1: I just carried on. I can't sing loudly. If I try, it doesn't work. And so I think I'm almost speaking as much as as singing. That's maybe how I get the phrasing into it.
0: But yet with pitch, whereas the other talk singers are not known for that. Bob Dylan or Lou Reed, like (laughs) pitch is optional, but like it's all very precise for you. I had pitch. (laughs) Any thoughts just about, I don't know, like when I hear at least the percussion in this, do, 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 do Like, it's a little distracting. It's not how things would be produced in the very precise way that it would be. I mean, was this you actually singing live with the band or you, you at least got to overdub?
1: No, no. Yeah, and Mick Jagger was on tambourine.
0: Oh, all right. So I will blame him for... <laughs> it's a very prominent part of the song.
1: Isn't it wonderful? Charlie you know, Watts drumming is always just slightly behind and I think that was as well. <laughs> so, Yeah. Oh yeah, it was great. It was great, Re- really good. Although, you know, I didn't speak to anybody. I didn't have any kind of conversation with anybody. I just came in, sang, and went away again. Apart from having made the arrangement with David Ritzaker, that was that's it really. But the song itself, at that time, I was trying to write songs that weren't all about how wonderful love is. I didn't want it to be all hearts and flowers. I, you know, well, sometimes I, I want to be alone. <laughs> sometimes i really do love you but you know sometimes i would just like to be by myself and i think that was probably quite unusual for a love song at the time
0: the chorus i hesitate to call it a chorus i mean it repeats the same words, so i'll call it a chorus but like really the hook is the initial is that a sitar what the or is that just guitar yes guitar okay all right well it has that eastern flavor you know it's a twangy guitar You know, that's the thing that you can sit on. So that's what the verse goes over. But then going to this chorus, don't leave me stay. It gets more operatic there toward the end of it, but it's like a bridge. It's not really a chorus. It's just a bridge that happens twice. Yes.
1: Or as I was told about it for a pop song like that, it'd be verse, verse, middle eight, then verse, then middle eight, again, then verse. That was how I always put the songs together at that time. And yes, don't make me stay to walk aimlessly, hand in hand, just today, set me free, let me be alone.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm surprised that, you know, this one, part of the reason why I picked it is because it did make it nearly three minutes, but it seems like your approach to lyrics is very much, this is a poem, I'm sketching a thing. I'm gonna say it once, then we're done. You know, most of them are done by two minutes, some one and a half minutes. You know, yes. <laughs> like you're, you're the Ramones here. they are the punk.
1: Yes, but for that, for the single, it had to repeat the middle eight and then repeat the last verse. Yeah, I guess that's just the way it was, and that was the way I was made to do it.
0: Yes, having a bunch of other musicians there means that you can add layers. So the last verse sort of adds an extra sawing guitar, and then this interesting. And which I guess starts at about two and a half minutes in, I guess they could have just repeated it over some more done. Have you do some more oohs and ahs and things or something?
1: I think I might have run the line at that.
0: <laughs> Thankfully. Yes. It has a nice little fade out there. Well, let's jump forward a little bit to get another song on the table. Rose Hip November, you had said in the book, was the one that you thought came out the best from Just Another Diamond Day, nineteen seventy. And I should say that, you know, the book is of course about sort of the making of this record. Not so much the actual time in the studio that's in there, but the trip that you took on which all these were written. You had said Rose Hip November sort of happened about square in the middle of that, where you were traveling. How long did this whole thing last? Well, from south of London to the outer Hebrides via
1: sky. At the very northern part of Britain, took a year and a half with a horse and a cart and a boyfriend and a dog. It took a lot longer than we had intended it to. But along the way, I wrote these songs, not intending to record them because I think with the failure of something's just sticking your mind, and I, I recorded a lot more with Andrew other people in the next couple of years and nothing happened nothing came out of it and it was constant heartbreak and building it up like I said before and then it just all crashes and I had left that behind I had decided I didn't want anything more to do with recorded music I was never going to sit in a studio again but I was writing these songs on this horse-drawn journey up through Britain to keep me going and to keep my partner going, just to keep the dream going, because we were going towards something that we thought was going to be a new life, a different life. And I met Joe Boyd halfway through the journey, who produced the incredible string band at Fairbook Convention and Nick Drake. And I sang some of the songs to him that I'd written, and he said he wanted to make an album by time I'd finished the journey, but I had another year to go before I finished the journey. But he still kept his promise to make that album. But as you say, halfway through, I was in a house that had been lent to us for the winter. an extraordinary story surrounds that being given a house to stay in for the winter. And I was sitting on a, a window seat looking outside at the wind blowing the trees over and being so grateful to be inside because I'd been on the road, out in the wind and rain for months, and to be inside was wonderful. and looking out the window and I had my guitar, and the roadside bushes were all full of rose hips, and I just thought, well, you know, this is November, and the rose hips are out near the rosep. It's rose hip November, and it's autumn, I'll remember, gold landing at our door. Catch one leaf, and fortune will surround you evermore. And that was from a childhood. Thing that if you catch a leaf in the autumn, that you'll be lucky always. And so that's why I put that into that song. The middle verse now with the shepherd and the shepherdess, you know, I wouldn't think of that now (laughs) as being romantic, being a vegetarian now. I wouldn't think now to write about shepherds and shepherdesses, but actually it fits into that song so well. And the shepherd is playing a pipe. And Robin Williamson was playing a penny whistle over it. And he did it so beautifully. He also played a harp, a little Celtic harp. And I think we probably only did two takes of it. And my friend Christopher Sykes and my friend John James, John was on the dulcetone, me on guitar and and vocal, It was just one off. We probably had one microphone you know, or maybe two and it just worked completely. And I think I was so happy to be with other musicians because I'd just been by myself with guitar and to have them put what they put into that song. And it came out so much like November and the wind and the rain. And also the way that I was feeling having been on the road for all that time was that I was part of the outside world, that I wasn't apart from it that everything had a soul for me you know the pine tree looking down all the trees and the grass and the roads everything seemed to have some kind of being to me and that's what I wanted to put into that song that I don't know if it comes across like that but that's what I was intending
2: with it Rose
0: So, like many of these things, you start with a finger picking lick. And I do a lot of finger picking and I get a little frustrated with it because I feel like I have to learn a new finger picking thing in order to do another finger picking song. But, you know, this at least has the bass movement and you have da, 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 da You know, you have something on the top strings that's moving. So it's not just picking two chords and arpeggiating over them. Is that sort of the prime way that you were at this point or throughout, you know, okay, this counts as a new song because I have a lick here that's a starting point?
1: Yeah. That pattern of picking I still use. And like you say just now, you're trying to find a different way. I'm sort of stuck in it,
0: really. Unless you're Richard Thompson or somebody who just like has, seems to have extra fingers, then you're going to have patterns and that's fine. Actually, your solution seems to have been get a second guitarist to play over it and then it'll sound really sparkly and busy. (laughs)
1: Exactly. That's what I do now. with Wonderful guitarist called Gareth Dixon. We've been playing shows now for 15 years together. And that's exactly what he does. I do the basic picking and he does all the lovely bits over the top and it works. But yes, for Rosette November, it was a guitar I didn't know as well because my own guitar had been run over on the way to the studio. (laughs) And this was one I didn't know at all. And I found it quite difficult to begin with, but I I got to know it. And so, yes, it was just my guitar. And the way that I played the song is very similar to how I play now. Of course, when I started learning guitar, it was just strumming. But I never strum now. I always play and try to use all the strings and all the way up as well. I use a capo sometimes on seven. And I really like that.
0: Just so you can play really high. (laughs) So it sounds very ukulele-like or (laughs) brighter than that. You said you only played this through twice with the band, but it's pretty obviously directed as in, okay, tin whistle, don't come in until the verse where we're talking about the pipe is heard. So there's sort of a different thing comes in each time so that by the third verse, you what it's a swirling, or maybe it's just the keyboard that's been playing before starts playing more busily.
1: It was Robin when he came in with the harp, those tumbling notes of the harp on that last, I think it's the last verse if I can remember it right. I just absolutely got my heart. He did it so beautifully. That is my favorite one off, off the album.
0: Yeah, it's amazing that if it really was one mic, because it seems like it would be very hard to mix that level of churn.
1: I think it probably wasn't one mic. I, I know that Come Wind, Come Rain, that was definitely one mic. But "No Hip November, it must have been more, because you can pan it. And so there must have been more. But yeah, I, oh god, it was a lovely moment playing that song.
0: So, you know, if you're not a folk singer, is it that you start the book talking about your love of classical music as a kid? And I get the suggestion of you don't play piano, but like settee, you know, those kind of very elegant piano, or actually, do you play piano now? The later albums that have piano songs, is that you doing that? Or did you just write it out or instruct somebody very carefully?
1: It was me doing it, but I would do what would normally be the right hand on one track and then the left hand on another and actually one of the songs has three <laughs> three hands so yeah, you know, i don't play the piano but i can play one note at a time and put them all together and that's why i, I love my computer
0: <laughs> well and are you as well as editing things are you like quantizing such that digitally moving the things so because they sound quite precise
1: <laughs> yes yeah really the editing takes way more time than it should and you know where to end, you know. But yes, I love all of that.
0: So even though it's acoustic, I don't know, when I was playing acoustic music as a young person, I would play folk clubs because that's where there was to play. But it's not necessarily that I was playing "Blow in the wind either. The differences maybe mattered more back then when folk was a political statement. People play folk now, you know, it's I'm doing unplugged. You could be doing rock. You could, you know, throw the electrics away and just be doing the same thing. And now, oh, now you're a folk band. But like, it seemed like it meant something very distinct at the time, which you were saying in the book that how your producer maybe thought that you were on board with that just because, hey, you just did one of the most folky things traveling in a with a horse across country. That really sounds like, you know, a flower child kind of folky. Yeah, it does sound like it, doesn't it? it wasn't.
1: But <laughs> yeah, well, that's what Joe Boyd said to me recently. He said, I have to apologize to you for bringing in Robin Williamson and, and Simon Nicholl and Dave Swartbrick from the Incredible String Band and from Fairport Convention, who were clearly folk musicians. That is why, of course, you've been condemned to being called a folk singer. And I'm really sorry, but I came to visit you. It must have been in 69. And you had a horse and a wagon and you were pretty much living in a field. <laughs> and I thought, this is the most folky life. You know, you were the most folky person I'd ever met. And so, of course, that's who I thought you were. But then he also, for the album, he brought in Robert Kirby to do some arrangements, to do three of the songs in the kind of classical way that I wanted. And so, you know, Robert Kirby arranged Nick Drake's music. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know Nick Drake's music at the time. But what Robert Kirby did for my songs was exactly what I wanted and how I wanted it to be. And so when it was all mixed in with songs with banjos and mandolins and fiddles, you know, it didn't work for me. I preferred the ones that were beautifully arranged for strings and recorders. And yet, Rose November, it's a folk song,
0: (laughs) really. Well, yeah, you describe in the book how the songs like I Want to Be Alone, the things you were doing a little earlier that are these love songs, these personal things, and that by this point, and I see this in the book too, there's a lot of description in the book. Even though this is many years after the fact that I don't know how you could be describing in such detail a teapot that you found on the side of the road or a particular field that you pass but there's you know a lot of vivid you know it seems like an open ended way of i can just describe the nature around me and then i don't have to have new feelings every time because there's always more stuff to describe and it's all beautiful yeah <laughs> that's about right
1: if you're talking about the journey and being outside and being in the wind and the rain and the yeah it was beautiful it was also very wet and muddy <laughs> i had to learn how to deal with that and I did.
0: Because you convey that in the book, how you grew up with this sort of pastoral picture of, you know, this idealized picture of farm life from going to your grandparents' house. But then when you actually had to do it and interact with farmers and like, they're not yeah the shepherd happy in the field.
1: no. <laughs> Exactly right. I had to learn what actually happens to animals, you know, and I do describe that in the book. And uh, what an education, you know. It's not all pretty in lambs and hay bales and combine harvesters. I loved combine harvesters when I was young. But (laughs) as I grew and understood by walking up the middle of the UK, I came to understand what farms actually are and the cruelty. And it taught me a lot that journey.
0: I'm looking at the second verse here. Pine tree very tall, waiting for the snow to fall. Mist hangs very still. So this is all descriptive. Caught and dawn by castle moats around the sleeping hill. So unless you were actually in Scotland passing an actual castle, this sounds like, oh, no, no, this is all magical and idealized. Let's throw some little Arthurian bits in there. Where does that sort of fantasizing fit in with this I don't want to say gritty, but like realistic, pastoral, I'm painting the landscapes in song.
1: Yeah, it was to try to make better of that, to try and make it feel better. It was a dream. It was a fantasy. It was where we're going. We're going to this new life. And I think for hit November, it was a way of making myself feel better, to try and get some of the innocence back into my life, into my mind which had been a bit shocked by reality. So I wanted to get away from reality and make this prettier, I guess, to try and make myself keep going, really.
0: Yeah, that matches with the, as you said, the catch one leaf and fortune will surround you evermore, that it's about idealism. It's not just, isn't nature awesome?
1: It's about innocence, I think. And that was something that was getting stripped away from me. And I wanted to get it back. Certainly with you know, the shepherd and the shepherdess. Now a pipe is heard. happy is the shepherd, shepherdess and dog, father of the pastureland and mother of the flock. And what you were saying about the castle moats, and yes, the Arthurian legends that I'd grown up with, all of that, it was imagery. It was about unreality, <laughs> trying to get away from the reality.
0: So in this song, you actually do have a little oh 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 you have some non sort of the equivalent of the guitar solo. let me actually insert so i guess that's the moment where that harp comes in and is doing all that swirly but was that part of the song when you sang it by yourself that i'm gonna go oh 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 in there
1: yes definitely and when i sing it now live or with just gareth on the other guitar Yes, I sing it completely like that, yes. But I always miss the harp and the whistle and the dulcet turn.
0: And is that nonverbal melody the same every time? Because that is sort of like you wrote, you know, an alternative melody as opposed to, and now we're vamping to sort of make something shimmery here. Like you could have written more lyrics if you wanted to, but do you remember why that didn't seem like a place for lyrics? It's had to transcend words there? Yes, it was the wind. I guess that's all I can say about it.
1: It was the wind in the
0: trees. <laughs> Very literal. Let me play uh, how this song ends. I wasn't totally sure like if it actually... Gets to the final chord, or it's just it's trailing off, and so you you just don't even know.
1: I don't think we'd rehearsed it. That's just what everybody did at the end. I always played it the same. I always played the guitar and vocal the same, but we hadn't actually decided what to do at the end, and so yeah, it just happened.
0: That does explain that even though you have just as many instruments in this arrangement as you did in the one that we talked about earlier, you'd already worked it out playing by yourself, and the structure was not going to change. Like that's the length of the song. I sort of learned that over time that I was doing stuff by myself and then I would get a really good guitarist in and I would feel like I should write songs that are longer where I do less. Just so that they could have more room to mess around. But you didn't get to that point where you're having to humor people and, or, you know, or wanting to let the band jam. Like, no, this is the thing you came in with. And that's, and that's how we're going to do it. And you had very strong opinions in the book on how some of the other songs in here, like, Oh, we had the fiddle player came in and jammed over the whole thing. And like, I don't know about that. That's not how I want to done it. <laughs> well,
1: yeah. But you know, I've said it before at that time, the producer was God. And you didn't say, well, no, actually, I don't want the fiddle on that one. I don't want the banjo on this one. I would rather have this fiddle on here or I'd rather have nothing on this one. You know, it wasn't exactly doing as I was told. I went along with it because Joe was the producer and the producer said how it was going to be. I said how the songs were, the way they were set out. Certainly, Rose Hit November, I had a very strong feeling for how it should be but as far as the instruments on some of the other songs went I didn't have a say. I regret that in some ways, but on the other hand I've come around to it now. As long as people don't call me a folk singer I'm happy.
0: I'll keep that in mind when writing the episode description. I will. <laughs> Cuz that's before I read the book, I probably would have put the that... You also react in the book. You talk about how you actually had some interaction with Nick Drake later and have you been referred to in the press as like the female Nick Drake? Is that what you were reacting to there?
1: Yes, yes. In some places, yes. But I absolutely reject that. He was just so way ahead of me. I've said that, you know, he knew he was a genius and I knew I wasn't. And that was the difference
0: between us. Well, too bad you don't get to decide. The listeners get to decide whether you're a <laughs> genius or not. You, <laughs> I, demographically, it at least works. Like if as a Spotify recommendation or something... When somebody's been listening to Nick Drake, I would not be surprised if you come up. Let's stop for some sponsor talk. The Psychology Podcast with Scott Barry Kaufman, who's a cognitive scientist who writes and researches on intelligence, creativity, and human potential. Psychology Podcast will give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. In each episode, Scott explores the depths of human potential by talking to inspiring scientists, thinkers, and other self-actualized individuals. For example, Scott has interviewed renowned psychotherapist and author Esther Perel about love and relationships. He's also interviewed biologist David Sinclair about aging and longevity, and Amanda Knox about trauma. Listen to the Psychology Podcast now, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's jump forward to your third album, or second proper album, but third release, we should say, Look After in 2005. We're going to talk about Wayward. I picked just because it is the song that you quoted in the book. It's a clearly reflection on the journey that we were just talking about. Do you have any introductory words about that one? And I guess we should just say, at least briefly, it is strange that one would sort of need to write songs for a while. But then there's other things going on that you had kids and sort of as long as the kids were in the house, that need was not there. I don't know Were there musical ideas that went around in your mind, but like you just didn't bother to sit down and work them out. Or really, you just did not think about it at all for that many years.
1: Absolutely nothing. I think I was so, I don't know, so upset. So I don't know. I didn't take the rejection very well. And so I left music behind altogether. And then Joe Boyd persuaded me back into the studio and we made just another Diamond Day which was released in 1970. Nothing happened to it. Again, I rejected it because the music world had rejected me. And so I didn't want anything to do with music from then on for 30 years. I didn't sing to my children. I never got my guitar down off the wall. I never had anything to do with music until Diamond Day was reissued in the year 2000. And the response to it was so different and so warm and welcoming and wonderful that it made me able to pick up my guitar again and write songs again. And when it came to writing Wayward, it was kind of referencing those years when I didn't have anything to do with music, when it was domesticity. (laughs) <laughs> it was scrubbing floors, it was making beds it was you know sinks full of washing up it was looking after the horses it was looking after everything, which was why the album became look aftering because it, I was looking back you know where Diamond day was looking forward to this wonderful dream different life look aftering was looking back and wayward was definitely looking back I wanted to be the one with road dust on my boots I didn't want to be in a house where the cups were all in their saucers, no dust. I wanted out, I wanted out. All of those years I wanted out, but didn't get out. And then I did. (laughs) But the end of the song is, all I ever wanted was a road without end. And when I came to be on tour, I think one of the shows I did in America, and I can't remember which one it was, but I toured twice, in the United States in two thousand six and two thousand seven. But for that one, the first time that I sang Wayward at the end of the show, all I ever wanted was a road without end. And I said, No, oh, I've got it. And the audience was just great, because they understood what I meant. I'd got my road without end. And whoa, that was a good feeling. That was, you know, the audiences were just wonderful. And also it was about Landowning as well was about being settled. It was about being stuck. It was about somebody wanting to fence themselves in and be safe. And I didn't want that. I I had it, but I didn't want it. And yeah, the second verse, you know, (laughs) the band of wayward children with their fathers left behind. That's a bit harsh, isn't it?
2: on my
0: again, we have a build in the arrangement, but it's not a gradual build. It's pretty much you and your guitar. And then, blam! let's throw a bunch of stuff, you know, like the choir, the orchestra has rolled in.
1: Everybody. Oh, God, that was great. Well, the first take that we did was with everybody, me singing the two verses with all the instruments, with all the, all the players. But because it was recorded, again, with not very many microphones, came to the mix my voice was too far back you couldn't hear it that you know that the instruments were much stronger and so max richter who was the producer for the album decided that we should just have me with the guitar for the two verses and then bring in everybody else for the last bit and it was devendra banhart and ardem and Otto Hausler from uh Vetiver, and Andy Pe- Kick from Better and Max as well on piano. And they all just came in at the end. I, I, I love that. <laughs> but I do have a version, I have another version of the instrumentation all the way through, and I like that as well.
0: So even in this late time where you know I wouldn't be surprised if you were brought in, you laid all your tracks down, and then we decide. Let's add some piano. Let's add this that you were still pursuing. We're not going to take a lot of time to record this. We're going to get talented people in here and we're all going to sit in a room. and It's going to be very organic.
1: Yeah, it was. Well, Max and I sat together and did the arrangements in his studio, his home studio. And that's where I learned logic by watching him. (laughs) And uh, then we had one incredible session down in London all of Vetiver were there and and Devendra and Adam and a lovely girl came in to play Cora Anglais and there was Max's string quartet and Max on the piano and Robert Kirby came, Robert Kirby who I hadn't seen since the recording of Just Another Diamond Day and we had persuaded him to come in and play uh, French horn and trumpet which he did and it was so lovely to see him again and to have that I don't know, just connection back to Diamond Day, he said, you know, we're the survivors. And of course, I knew what he meant. And he, he was such a lovely guy. And it was an incredible day, just one day to get so much done for all the songs. And then Max and I would sit at his studio at his computer and, and edit and put them all together. And then I don't know, I don't think we had any other sessions with any other players. No, we didn't. It, it was all that one day in London. And then Max and I putting little bits here and there and Max playing wine glasses with his daughter's violin bow. <laughs> just, there were some lovely, lovely moments in it.
0: As far as the songwriting for this album, you said you had, was it, so it was around 2000, a good four or five years went into making this album where you had time. I don't know. Was there sudden, just like suddenly a flood that you just wrote a bunch after not writing any songs for 30 years that you just. They flooded in, or was it like, okay, I wrote one song, and now three months later, I okay, here's another, or you know, what?
1: It was wonderful because the first royalties I got from Diamond Day, I bought a Mac, and I bought a little mixer, and I bought a little keyboard, and I had a a music program, a free one off the front of a music magazine. (laughs) I can't even remember what it was called, but that's when I started learning a music program, and oh god, it was so great. To have that control, you know, being in the 60s and, and seeing these wonderful desks full of lights and, and, and levers and, and that I had never got anywhere near. But to see it on a computer screen, whoa, that was really great. And that's when I started writing more songs and so that I didn't have to be, be listened to. I could make terrible messes and throw them away. And, and uh, it was a wonderful freedom to experiment, experiment, experiment. And so, yes, it was a bit of a flood of songs. A few of them were written while I was recording with Max, but most of them were in that, in that period after Diamond Day.
0: Was this, again, you're starting with a finger-picking pattern? Because you write poetry, but is it poetry first sometimes, that, such that you have notebooks full of way more things than you'll ever put to music? Or is it all, you have guitar in hand, and then the poetry can come?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm very slow, very slow. Sometimes it's the words that occur, but when I did get that little keyboard, I have got it here actually, after the first royalties, and I don't play the piano, I don't play a keyboard, but to find a few little things and record them, and then be able to move them around and and make them into different instruments, and that was great. Sometimes I would put the guitar over it afterwards, or sometimes I'd start with the guitar and then put a few keyboard notes over the top, but What was the best thing about it was that I didn't have to worry about it. I didn't have to worry about studio time. I could just find whatever I was going to find. There's one song on the capturing, same bit different, that came to me in the supermarket.
0: The most catchy melodies are ones that they can follow you around and they force you to write them down eventually because they just won't go away. And you probably stole them from something, but, you know, that's just the way melodies work. Very possible. <laughs> as long as you don't realize, oh, God damn it, I just rewrote the 60s song. You know, as long as it, it's not so similar.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that has happened. But yeah, I was staring at a row of cans of beans or whatever, and this song just came straight into my head, and I had to run home and put it down. You know, it didn't change from the moment I was staring at the cans of beans to when I actually put it down and recorded it. How does that happen? And yet other times it can worry over something and mess about with it for for weeks on end. But that one just appeared
0: there's only one rhyme in here that it's the the one who's left behind, comes back home to find. I think that's the only thing that actually rhymes in the whole thing. Does that make it easier? Or I would think that it actually sort of makes it harder because I, I know I see, I tend to rhyme a lot. And so it turns into just like, what can I find that actually, all right, maybe I wrote line four first. and so now I have to come with line two that rhymes with it. But if you don't worry about that, if the delivery is such that it's slow enough and it's casual enough that it's just not gonna, you don't need to sock it with the rhyme you know it opens it up to you, you write more like an essay but on the other hand it's wide open there's n- it's not like filling in a crossword puzzle it's just i have to think of the actual thing that i want to say
1: yeah and sometimes when i think back about writing a song when i've finished a song i think how did that ha- how did i find that actual word there it's not that they have to be actual rhymes but that they are a little bit like word at the end of the last line and so it's quite good really because you're not limited to having to find an actual rhyme. It's just something that kind of fits or sounds just a little bit like it. It does make it a bit easier. Maybe it's cheating. I don't know. Do you have to rhyme?
0: Maybe not. So you'd gotten back to more personal songs from description, but you still have the vivid details that, you know, the single silver earring, putting that in, which is not, that's not a trope of the traveling life. That's like just something specific to your own experience
1: Yeah, the okay. single silver earring is for a single person a person an unmarried person so
0: that's is that what that means or you're just saying it's just what it represents to you it's
1: a known representation okay and
0: i i didn't I had not heard that reference
1: i know well why would you yeah the single silver earring is for an unmarried person and that's what i've always been and so and i want that's what i wanted to be a single yeah with a single silver earring and a suitcase full of notes.
2: Mm.
0: <laughs> and maybe the reason I Want to Be Alone keeps coming back in my head is because you've had some life getting lost in a world without end, where you sort of, again, like in the chorus of that song, you sail off into the stratosphere. There, you know, it's the world without end, the road without end, that the angels are here. I don't know. <laughs> we're,
1: we're yeah, <laughs> oh, I love singing that line live, because we always sort of make it mean something when I'm singing that road without end I, I love that note I enjoy doing that song nice
0: let me play the end of the song again so we can hear how you guys decided to wrap this up So that one much more blatantly than the previous one. I mean they both have a similar like rose hip November have that you know the band sort of stumbles to a stop but here it was it seems like it was a very consciously like do not go back to the tonic like it has to end <laughs> suspended that'll make it dreamy if we get a downbeat there it's going to ruin it.
1: It was totally accidental. It was just what everybody did.
0: All right. Okay. So again, this is not really worked, it really worked.
1: That last really tingy note was Adam on his auto-harp. I
0: just left that. Before we grind toward the end here, where we're going to just introduce a final song from your last album, the title track from Heart Leap, but let's talk a little more about, I'm just fascinated by this, I quit music, and then I quit music again, and then I did the thing, and then I took another several years to do a last album, 2000. so it's 2007, 2005, was look-aftering and I saw you did some other recording around that time with other musicians. And then 2014, the last album, in fact they're all pretty short albums. Like it's you know, it's plenty of songs, but like yeah, short so albums as we were saying, forty minutes or thirty minutes, whatever it is. And then you just said in the book at least, and now I'm done. I finally figured out how to do what I wanted to do in nineteen sixty four, and now I don't have to do anymore. Can you explain that a little more? Is that Are you serious about that? Are there songs that are going in your head now that you want to write down? Oh, I wish, I wish. It may yet happen, because I don't know
1: how it happened last time. But certainly after look aftering," and I, I was touring and I was doing all kinds of stuff with that album, it was just great. And then I met Robert Kirby again, and I had some new songs, and we were going to record together, and, you know, I sent him some of the songs. And, he had some wonderful ideas for what we were going to do. And then his wife called me to say that he would died. And I was so shocked by that because, you know, I thought this is really going to make it right to have Robert Kirby do the next one with me. And that'll make, you know, it'll be a wonderful reference back to the old days. And, and then he wasn't there anymore. And it was a big shock. And that was why there was so much of a gap. Between Look Aftering and and Hartley, I was working on the songs. Well, I didn't do anything for two years after Robert Kirby died. I didn't do anything at all. I never looked at my guitar again until I realized that what I really needed to do was to try to think how he might have done them and do it myself. And it took me quite a long time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> of really quite concentrated work. And I wanted to produce it myself. I wanted to play most of the instruments myself, even the fake ones. I loved, I loved the fake ones. And then get other people to do some studio recording as well. But it took a long time. And because I was producing it myself, I was doing the editing myself. Oh my goodness, that took a long time to get rid of every click and every Oh, every, bad, every
0: bad note how much did you pay attention to your own inhalation or yeah inhalations that when, when I was at a studio he's like going through and like you know what we're not going to remove we're just going to make each of them quieter because you know your voice is otherwise very compressed and we don't want you to sing a line and then <gasps> you know we don't want that all absolutely well, when
1: I was recording some things with Mac, Max Drathe later, he, he would take the breaths in between out," you know the yellow line in the logic, go right down, and take all the breaths between "out." But when I was recording myself, I thought, that's where the percussion is. that's where the expression is. You need the breath between the verses or between some of the words. like, you, like when you're speaking, you don't. Take the breaths out of your sentences. And that's how I felt that it should be. That Not that it should be. That's how I wanted it to be, as to that the breaths between were a kind of percussion, because I don't use percussion at all, that that would help with the rhythm and with the expression of the, of the lyrics.
0: Are you still getting offers for, to sing with other people? Are there other things that you're open to, even if you, you just don't want to, it sounds like, go through the tremendous effort of, as a lone soldier... I have to create this project because I completely sympathize with that, you know, that having somebody else that I'm in a band with to motivate me and make me show up every week or do something is like almost necessary that the times that I've done a purely solo album, I don't know, you got to really want to do it.
1: Oh, goodness. Yes, it's huge. When I look at, oh, if I go into a record store, and I look at all the piles of CDs on shelves here and there and everywhere. Each one of those was somebody's. Agony getting it finished, you know, and, and there's so many of them. And it's the same with books, of course, but I'll probably never put an, a whole album together again because it, it, is, it, is, it takes everything. It took me away from my family. It took me away from my partner. It took me away from life. And I don't want to do that again. But I do, well, I've just finished recording something with Devendra Banhart. I do stuff with other people, but to put another album together, I can't see that happening unless suddenly all these storms come rushing to me. I don't think so.
0: Well, I don't know. One of the other artists I interviewed in the last six months, she's a grandmother and has put out a lot of albums. And at this point, she just like, I record my guitar and my vocal and then I send it off and my producer finishes it. Like, you know, I'll veto things I don't like, but like, I just don't, I don't want to do that again. That's too...
1: Whoa. No, I'm too much of a control freak for that. I couldn't let somebody else do that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that does require a certain remove that you feel like. On the one hand, if you feel like the song is me and my guitar and that is done, I finished the song, then maybe you can be less attached to what goes on top of it or else you could just be so insistent that I want almost nothing to go on top of it, in which case, well, just record by yourself and then you're done. You don't need the harp.
1: It would be like sketching a drawing and then having somebody else color it in for you.
0: Like everybody that writes comic books in the world <laughs> that they do that, but I guess that's that's just a model. It's a different beast. It does not feel like it's your own heart that is being sprayed out there necessarily.
1: I think yeah, for me it's probably terrible terrible to do with ego, you know, that <laughs> it's got to be my way. That's how I recorded Hartley was, you know, I wanted it to be the way I wanted it to be. Because of all of those times that I let somebody else put their ideas onto it. And this time I wanted to do it myself, whether it would work or not. I had no idea, but that's what I wanted to. That's what I wanted to
0: do. Well, I know you said this costs such blood, sweat and tears, but at least it is possible technologically that you waited long enough for the technology to get good enough that you actually could do this on your own as opposed to. Obviously you were super talented or you wouldn't have gotten pulled at age 19 to be, you caught some people's attention, but it's also, you know, this democratization has meant that, you know, well, you're having to do stuff like this. You're, you're having to promote yourself constantly. And I've often felt like, you know, it's like in politics, they say the only people that, you know, would get elected to office are the people that you shouldn't be in office because you have to do so much wanting of the power and the work to get there. Whereas someone who is merely Eminently qualified would just have to be somehow plucked and placed, you know, maybe that could be a cabinet member or something, but I feel that that might be the same with music that the prototypical, the ideal artist would be, I create these things. It's like I'm doing a painting in my house, not the marketing machine that anybody actually has to be. If they're like, here's this thing I made. And now I have to put five times as much work talking to people about it and getting it out there and putting in their dues. The fact that you talk in your book about. That you did a little touring toward the end of your trip through Holland, was it?
1: Yes, we were offered a tour, but it turned out to be youth clubs.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, and and part of it was, you know, that they weren't really paying you and things. But it also, you know, you were talking about like, well, they weren't listening to me. And so forget this. I'm not doing this. Like, wait a second. That was my entire life in bars at age 20. Like, of course, that's putting in your dues. That's what you got to do. You got to play for indifferent people for five years. And then maybe somebody cares. But like, that's not something that a a really creative, the fragile flower that is an artist should actually want to do.
1: Well, yeah, I used to burst into tears and run off the stage if nobody was listening to me. I was, yeah, terrible, terrible flower. Yes.
0: Well, it's really great. I mean, the book more so than the travelogue part, which was really interesting, but just the story of how, and finally I got recognition and then seeing you just seem so happy to be there and so happy that, You know, you're able to, you're kind of doing your stage patter. Like I'm surprised you're talking at a a more animated, you know, just like you describe in the book that, you know, you're, I'm not going to draw your attention to me. I'm not a showman, but listen to this nice thing that I'm doing. And they actually are, and they're really happy to hear you. And they're so, it's just such a wonderful, such a different thing than, you know, going to a bar at age 20 to play in different crowds oh
1: so different so different and so lucky you know to have this second time around to actually be listened to incredibly lucky and yeah i, I survived it uh, like robert Kirby said uh, he didn't not very sadly he didn't but uh i'm still still here <laughs> how lucky is that
0: to close out do you have a few words about specifically about this tune heart leap which is the closer of the last album and, you know, I don't know. It punches me in the gut. This is why I picked this one in particular. I think it's different in a way. I don't know. How would you characterize? Do you have any words about this tune or do you want to just let people?
1: I think it came about because my daughter, a painter, drew this, painted this beautiful white heart, which was on my desktop. I don't know. It just came into my head, you know, that she called it Heart's Leap. And I thought, well, Heart Leap, Heart Leap. And I started writing as well, singing that song. And it was one of the things that just came like a stream of consciousness. And I got it all down straight away. And it's the cycle of love and heartbreak and love again and possibly more heartbreak. And your heart overcoming your head and trying it all again. It was just about the cycle and I felt when I'd finished it that it was the song I had always wanted to write about what I'd always wanted to write about. That love comes and goes, (laughs) never stays the same. And after I'd finished it, I thought, well, I might never write another song and actually I haven't.
0: Thank you so much again for doing this.
1: Oh, well, thank you. It's been great to talk to you and I hope you can put it all together.
0: Well, that is just gorgeous. Thank you so much to Vashti. Her website, again, is anotherday.co.uk. We had a little break between the last couple episodes. I have not been recording these as frequently, though I will actually blame this delay on my editor, who is having some life changes as well. But I have two coming up in the next two weeks. I'm talking to a Chicago singer-songwriter named Nicholas Tremulous, who has worked with Alejandro Escovedo and with my recent guest Ivan Julian before. Been doing stuff since the 80s. Super talented, really wide variety of styles. I will not reveal the other ones that I have coming up until they actually happen. Make sure you stay up to date at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or subscribe directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed on the podcast app of your choice. I'm still a little in limbo as to whether I will be releasing these going forward every two weeks as I had been doing or every three weeks... Again, the thing that will increase my likelihood of posting promptly is by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash nakedly examined music. Thanks for all of you that support me there already. If you want to have the lyrics and structures of these songs as you are listening to these episodes ready to hand, that will be made available to you through those Patreon posts. And you also don't have to hear me read ads anymore. I should mention, I did a live show recently with one of my other podcasts, The Partially Examined Life, and we have released the multicam video for that live show on YouTube now. You can find the link at partiallyexaminedlife.com. It is on Dostoevsky's The Brother Karamazov. And whether you not you read the book, whether or not you're not your fan of philosophy, I think that show is very accessible to anybody. Hope you're all doing well. Staying creative. Keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark Linsenweier signing off. Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile upholstery carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet upholstery
1: and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners,
0: also offering odor treatment
1: and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today. 570-726-6200